This podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, who makes it easy and fun to simply step outside. That might mean breaking a speed record in a rugged, built-for-fun sonic snow tube, walking an extra block in a warm, weather-resistant down jacket, or just taking a breath on your doorstep before cozying up in a quilted sweatshirt. For however you experience the outdoors, shop clothing and gear at llbean.com. Be an outsider. Decades before Henry Wadsworth Longfellow would call the house on Brattle Street home, a general tasked with leading the nation to freedom would take up residency, and an enslaved couple would have a lasting and profound effect on Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Jason Epperson, and this is the America's National Parks Podcast. On this episode, the Longfellow House, Washington's headquarters, National Historic Site. Yes, that's its awkward full name, and two stories of freedom from two very different perspectives. George Washington arrived in Cambridge on July 2nd, 1775. That evening, he formally took command from Massachusetts General Artemis Ward and went to work. Two weeks later, Washington relocated to the Grand Georgian Mansion of the evacuated Loyalist John Vassal. It's here at 105 Brattle Street that Washington experienced the frustrations of dealing with the faulty political structures developed to replace British colonial institutions. For the first time, Washington, an owner of enslaved people since age 11, would witness men of color functioning as effective and dedicated soldiers. But what did his time at the Vassal home really do to shape his views on slavery? This show isn't affiliated with the National Park Service, but from time to time, we like to share with you their interpretive work. With more on George Washington's development as a leader, as well as his shifting views on race, slavery, and freedom, we turn to this piece from the park and Ranger Anna. Welcome to Longfellow House, Washington's headquarters, National Historic Site. This is the house that George Washington claimed as his first headquarters of the American Revolution. In fact, we're standing in the room that we think he slept in. During his nine months here, Washington learned how to be a leader and started his trajectory to becoming a national hero, a legacy still important to Americans today. Now you probably know that the accolades for George Washington abound. He is the father of the country, the commander in chief, the asserter of liberty. But he was also a real man, with flaws and contradictions, as well as admirable traits. And that is the story we like to get into here at Longfellow House, Washington's headquarters, National Historic Site. When General George Washington arrived at the Vassal Estate in July of 1775, he was only 43 years old and wasn't from here. He had an immense task ahead of him. The Continental Congress had sent him here to get the British troops to leave the city of Boston and to turn the New England army, which could be rather stubborn and prideful at times, into a cohesive and unified continental army. So how did Washington change the minds of the soldiers of the continental army and position himself as a national hero? When he arrived in New England, 
George Washington was surprised to see that the Continental Army here was a racially integrated army. As a slaveholder from Virginia, that was probably a challenging sight for him. In one of the first war council meetings that took place in this house, the council decided to ban all black soldiers from the Continental Army. Now these are soldiers who had already fought at Lexington and Concord and the Battle of Bunker Hill for a cause that they believed in. Washington would have to re-examine this choice at the end of 1775. About that time, the contracts for the soldiers of the Continental Army were coming up. Many of the soldiers would go home. He was facing an enlistment crisis. In a personally decisive move, George Washington did not ask permission. He didn't hold a war council meeting or ask the Continental Congress and instead changed his mind he decided to allow black soldiers to fight in the Continental Army. Now, historians like to debate about whether that was a change in George Washington's character or whether it was done just out of military necessity. What we do know, though, is the decision he made here at headquarters had lasting effects. The Continental Army was the most integrated fighting force in this country all the way until the Vietnam War. Washington's second influential move as a leader here at headquarters was the fortification of Dorchester Heights and the subsequent removal of the British troops from Boston. In March of 1776, the War Council moved to fortify a peninsula south of the city of Boston that commanded the Boston Harbor. From that location, they threatened the shipping lanes, meaning they threatened the escape for the British troops as well as their supply lines it looked like a battle would ensue. The British got in their ships to come over to the peninsula, and before they could land, a storm came into the harbor and blew them back. And so there wasn't a battle. Instead, George Washington's first victory was a negotiation. An agreement was made that if the British troops left the city of Boston without burning the city to the ground, they would not be bombarded by those cannons on Dorchester Heights. They ended up leaving on March 17, 1776, which is still celebrated here as a holiday known as Evacuation Day. Dorchester Heights is considered George Washington's first military victory. His detractors say that he was slow to act and was given a victory by default. His supporters say that he had a bloodless victory and saved countless lives. Later on, the Continental Congress struck a medal in his honor, and when they delivered it to him in thanks, they called him the Asserter of Liberty. When George Washington left his Cambridge headquarters, he had finally become synonymous with the cause. In a couple months, that cause becomes independence. George Washington is now a national hero. George Washington was not a man without his flaws, though. He demonstrated elitism and racist ideas while he was here at headquarters. Later on in the Revolution, he would be surrounded by people like Hamilton and Lafayette that advocated for the fulfillment of a true cause for liberty, the eradication of slavery in the new nation. George Washington never put his political weight behind that argument. He was the only founding father to free the people he enslaved, but only after he and his wife Martha passed away. This is the contradiction we have to grapple with, that the asserter for liberty was also a slave owner. So what do the stories that we tell about George Washington tell us about our ideals of leadership? 
You can find answers to that question within these walls. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine. From remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts, you can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com or on the app, and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit Campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. In 1759, 16 years before Washington's arrival, the Georgian mansion at 105 Brattle Street was built for John Bassel Jr., a wealthy sugar plantation owner who enslaved at least seven people at his Cambridge estate and hundreds more on his plantations in Jamaica. Loyalists to the crown, the vassals fled their Brattle Street home prior to the American Revolution. Left there with no directives, two of the people they enslaved, Tony and Cuba, seized freedom with more on the history of enslavement at Brattle House and Tony and Cuba's fight for freedom, here's Ranger Anna again. The stately colonial mansion at 105 Brattle Street was likely built by enslaved African laborers in 1759 for John Vassal Jr. Vassal, only 21 years old, had recently inherited an enormous family wealth, property in New England, sugar plantations in Jamaica, and a long legacy of human bondage. Between 1675 and 1833, the Vassal family and their relatives enslaved thousands of people on their sugar plantations in Jamaica and in their estates in Massachusetts. Two of those individuals, Tony and Cuba, met and married while enslaved across the street at 94 Brattle Street. This was the home of John Vassal's aunt and uncle, Penelope and Henry Vassal. Upon Henry's death in 1769, the family was separated. Penelope kept Tony and two of their children, James and Dorinda. Cuba, who was pregnant with another child, was sold to John Vassal and came to live at 105 Brattle. Shortly after, she gave birth to her son Darby, who was gifted in the next few years to a George Reed of South Woburn, today Winchester. Along with many of the white homeowners on Brattle Street, the Vassal family fled in September 1774, before the start of the American Revolution. Tony joined Cuba and six other enslaved individuals at 105 Brattle to maintain the property in their enslavers' absence. The Vassal family, however, never returned to Cambridge. With many loyalists fleeing, the legal status of the people they enslaved was in limbo. Within the next year, the American Revolutionary War broke out and the house became the headquarters of the Continental Army. Its new occupants included General George Washington, the Continental Army staff, Martha Washington, 
and most likely enslaved people who attended to the Washington's needs. We know that William Lee, Washington's personal valet, was present at the house during the Siege of Boston, but no few details about his time there, or what he thought of his enslaver leading a cause for liberty and freedom. We return to Tony, Cuba, and their family in 1780 when they were living on a corner of the abandoned vassal property. They adopted the surname of their enslavers, becoming the vassals of Cambridge. In 1781, the General Court of Massachusetts was preparing to sell the vassal estate. Tony petitioned the court to allow him squatter's rights on the house where his family lived. The petition read, Though dwelling in a land of freedom, both himself and his wife have spent almost 60 years of their lives in slavery, and that though deprived of what makes them now happy beyond expression, yet they have ever lived a life of honesty and have been faithful in their master's service. They hoped that they shall not be denied the sweets of freedom, the remainder of their days being reduced to the painful necessity of begging for bread. This petition to remain on the property was denied. An annual pension of 12 pounds was granted instead. Utilizing the language of the revolution, enslaved people in Massachusetts, like Tony, turned to the courts in petitions and legal cases to advocate for their natural and unalienable right to that freedom. These legal actions, called freedom suits, and the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution unraveled the legal protection for the institution of slavery in the state. A 1783 case, Commonwealth v. Jenison, was a major turning point in that process of legal freedom, which culminated in the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865, abolishing slavery in the United States. In 1787, Tony purchased a house and a one-acre lot on what is now Massachusetts Avenue and Shepherd Street near Porter Square. This property expanded over the years and was passed down to his children, including Darby and Catherine Vassal Lewis. Through Catherine's 1815 marriage into another prominent family in Cambridge, the Lewises, a black community began to emerge near the Cambridge Common. It was known as Lewisville. The descendants of these two families went on to leave their mark on history. Darby became a founding member of the African Society in Boston and advocated for a school for black children on Beacon Hill. An uncle on the Lewis side, Kwaku Walker Lewis, was a founder of the Massachusetts General Colored Association, later known as the New England Anti-Slavery Society. Another Lewis, Enoch, formed the Cambridge Liberian Emigrant Association. This family worked incredibly hard to achieve success in an unfriendly environment, creating a tight-knit Black community and advocating for the rights of their people. The Longfellow House, Washington's Headquarters National Historic Site, is open seasonally with house tours resuming May through October and available on a first-come, first-served basis. Entry times vary, so be sure to check out the park's website before visiting. The garden and grounds are open year-round from dawn to dusk. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me with audio from the National Park Service. We hope you'll consider supporting us through our Patreon program for less than a dollar an episode. Visit patreon.com slash nationalparkspodcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. 
If you're interested in RV travel, check out RVMiles.com or find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. And by Campendium. Begin your camping adventure at Campendium.com to find thousands of campsites in the U.S. and Canada.